Cheerscast is part of the Fire and Water Network. Uh, hey everybody, this is my daughter's fiance! Hi, Roy, this is Carla, and Diane, and Sam, and this is my father, Ernie. It's a pleasure to meet you. Feelings ditto, Ernie. Can I get you a nice cold beer? Sure, Pops. Hey, mind if I smoke? Oh, uh, listen, cigar smoke bothers me. Yeah, I know it stinks, but it tastes great. <laughs> oh, Lisa tells me uh, you and Sam were in baseball. Yeah, that's right. I think it's a dead sport. <laughs> I just haven't claimed the body yet. There's no action. People need action these days. What, what sport do you like, Roy? Female full contact karate. <laughs> Excuse me, I have to go jumpstart my brain. <laughs> Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. Everybody knows your name You wanna go where people know People are all the same You wanna go where everybody knows your name Welcome back to Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and my special guest this time is the Wolfman himself, Mr. Andy Capellish. What's up, Andy? Uh, not much. Uh, I just, I was going to do a Norm joke, but I, I couldn't work it in naturally, so there it is. Oh, <laughs> uh, we'll work on it for the next time. Um, okay. <laughs> you, you, you were very enthusiastic when I first talked about doing a Cheers podcast. Why? What is your history with the show? How and when did you discover it? Well, actually, you know, I just, I, I love the idea of Cheers, I think, actually more even than I just love the series, which I do really like the series. Um, out of the three sort of Cheers universe, I'm a big Wings fan, to be honest. But <laughs> um, the uh, Cheers holds a very special place in, I think, American pop culture. And uh, I just, I'm excited that this podcast exists. And also, I just, I really like Cheers quite a bit. But, you know, I guess I would, wouldn't, like, you know, normally count myself as, like, a, you know, Cheers fanatic or anything like that. But, like, I, there's not been a time when I've ever turned Cheers off, ever. It's just, <laughs> if Cheers is on, I always watch it. And uh, I always have a good time. So, um, but, yeah, no, I, um, I I just kind of grew up with that as sort of my... Uh, definitely in my pop culture sort of lexicon, I guess. For anybody who might not understand the reference, what makes Wings, uh, the sitcom with Tim Daly and Steven Weber, what puts that in the same sort of universe as Cheers? Oh, well, didn't like uh, Norman Cliff Clavin show up as their characters <laughs> like they are? And I don't know if it's like it, it was an intentional thing or if it was like a later sort of like, you know, folding into the uh, Cheers cinematic universe <laughs> or whatever. But uh, you know, we're here to talk to you about the Cheers initiative. I don't know. Um, but like, 
the uh so then that was really a, a special treat to see them um show up as their sort of own characters yep. and i i think it's a little less dubious than say like you know the canonical ghostbusters uh casper thing um <laughs> because it, it, they definitely feel very similar so mm-hmm. and of course fraser is a spin-off a, a legitimate spin-off of right. but yeah so that's what i count as the canon cheers universe is the those three shows fraser so. appeared in wings too didn't he I believe so. Because um, I, I, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure Kelsey Grammer, and he may have even gotten like an award nomination or something like that for just a one-off guest appearance on Wings, because I think he was he got awards or nominations for playing the same role in three different TV shows, which is wow. like a phenomenal accomplishment and just such a, a weird little bit of trivia. But uh, So it's, it's really the Kelsey Grammer uh, expanded cinema universe. Or there whatever. you go. I think it's him and like Richard Belzer who plays Detective Munch on like all the, yeah, like yeah. Law and Order and Homicide and I think one other show. But I think he keeps keeps showing up as that character. He's a uh, he shows up in an episode of Arrested Development and they do a Munch tease, but it <laughs> turns out that he's just actually playing Richard Belzer. So, um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know how uh, his his character in the Flash fits into that. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a way. I'm sure there's a way. Sure. All right, so um, getting into the show, uh, Andy, you are here to help me cover episode five, and we'll put an asterisk next to that, and I'll, I'll mention ex- explain why <laughs> a little bit later. Uh, Coach's Daughter. This episode is written by Ken Esten, directed by, of course, James Burroughs, who directed the vast majority of the episodes of the whole series. The original air date for this episode was October 28th, 1982. Coach tells the gang at Cheers that his daughter, Lisa, is coming by the bar with her fiancé. This will be the first time Coach meets his future son-in-law, and he worries that he won't make a good impression. But that is not the first impression that he should be worried about. Everyone is excited to see Lisa Pantuso, but her fiancé, Roy, is a crude, boisterous, misogynistic jackass. The coach is resigned to keeping his disgust at Roy to himself in order to make Lisa happy. But Sam and Diane encourage him to tell her the truth. Coach confronts Lisa in Sam's office, forbidding her from marrying Roy. She reveals that she knows exactly how repugnant he is, but she's marrying him because no other man has ever shown her that kind of attention before. Realizing that Lisa is in need of a major self-esteem boost, Coach convinces her that she's as beautiful as her mother, and she feels good enough to go out to the bar and dump Roy. So, that in a nutshell was the Coach's Daughter. Andy, what did you think of this episode? Um, I really liked it. I feel like it's uh, probably a cut above most. Um, if I said so, if there was like a sort of Cheers sort of prime meridian or you know some sort of baseline for Cheers, I feel like this would definitely be at least one or two notches above the sort of normal Cheers fare. Um, I think it's very sweet. I like when Cheers episodes end up very sweet uh, or you know have some sort of positive message to them, other than just the sort of you know just banter back and forth between the people inside the bar. So. Um, I really, I don't know. I think it, it's a it's a great addition to the first season, and I think it establishes a really nice emotional core for Coach's character, who you know is sort of uh, very genuine and very sweet, and uh, you know it's it's proven by how he interacts with the people around him, and especially his family and his daughter. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it, I think it does a great job of sort of giving Coach depth and also giving sort of a, a frame of reference 
for him in comparison to the rest of the characters. Yeah, it really the I think the the emotional core of this episode is the scene between Coach and his daughter when they're in the back office, which I think we kind of need because at this point Coach is probably the most consistently funny character in the early episodes and like everything he says is hilarious, but he's very one note in the sort of simple-mindedness, the naivety, the just kind of stupidity sometimes. Uh, of just not understanding the situations, and they never quite get there. But it, I mean, it, at times they run the risk of making him kind of unbelievably naive, and, and to the point where it's like, how does this guy actually function in society? But <laughs> right. this episode, when you see him get emotional with his daughter first, when he's angry, and then when he's you know almost almost cracking and and telling her how beautiful she is, it is this wonderful human moment that just makes you love the guy all the more because yeah he's mm. always been funny and endearing but now you know gosh what a sweetheart he is and and you're right it is a sweet episode yes uh the re- the reason that i put said put an asterisk next to this one as episode 5 is because this episode was actually the second episode that they produced and I'm not sure, I mean, we kind of got to break it down because I'm not sure if the writing shares that, but it was the second episode that they produced, but NBC decided to hold it back and they delayed it for several weeks um, because they thought some of the other episodes should come out first. If you buy the first season DVD set, this episode is actually the second one on the first disc, like right after the pilot episode, because this, according to that, this should be episode two. I don't think this episode should be the second one. I, I think Sam's Women is much more effective uh, coming off of the pilot in terms of like the teaser and how we established. And I just think there's there's elements of this episode that you, I, I think I think it would just be a little bit jarring. And I remember that um, in particular, Diane. I didn't mention it, but there's this subplot in the beginning of this episode with Diane wanting to be a caricaturist in the bar. I love it. And she comes to Sam and she talks about how she wants to draw caricatures and we find out that she's very, very bad at it. Um, <laughs> but she has this kind of goal. But the way she approaches Sam and she's like, you know, if you, I'm just going to ask you this once and if you say no, I won't bring it up again. And he immediately shuts her down, no. But she keeps on going and she kind of refuses to take no for an answer. I don't think Diane would have that level of confidence, you know, the day after she got this job. Um, right. I think I think Diane's confidence really kind of comes from being in the bar and knowing these people for a couple of weeks. So maybe they wrote the episodes in order, but decided to film this one second after the pilot. And then I think wisely held off on delaying. I I just don't know. It doesn't feel like it's a second episode. Well, I know that we're, I'm going to be sort of, I guess, uh, metatextual about Mm -hmm. sort of my comment about that, but you know, it seems to me like this, um, this episode does a lot of world building mm-hmm. like, and maybe not so, you know, I, I, it's been a while since I've seen the other first episodes of cheers, but I will say this, there is a lot of information that is given in the background of this episode. So like the whole subplot about when uh, Sam is going to be talking to coach about uh, that's that one game that mm-hmm. was sort of changed his life or whatever, uh, or, you know, was, was, you know, necessarily, you know, necessary subplot. But, um, you know, there's a lot of information about how Coach interacts with basically everyone in the bar. 
Um, you know, and of course, like, you know, Norman Cliff are kind of like off doing their own thing. They're given a sort of subplot with the villain of the story, <laughs> um, which is really funny. But like the rest of it is very much so how Coach interacts with the members of his family that are actually biological and the members of his family that are chosen, which is, of course, going to be, uh, you know, Sam. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I really, uh, I think that it does a lot of sort of expanding your knowledge about not only the universe of the show, um, but also like this sort of like how the characters interact with one another. So yeah, I agree with you that this is, this is perfect for, you know, at least three or four episodes in to have, cause you have to have, I guess like it expands upon knowledge. It shouldn't be your first foray into these characters. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned the the scene with um when Sam is talking about the great advice that coach gave him during this game when uh Sam was talking about he was pitching and he was having a rough game, he didn't have any stuff and coach kind of coached him with this, you know, go get him phrase. Uh and he talks about that he refers to that game as one of the last games of his career and he says it was in 1974. That timeline-wise, I don't think matches up because in later episodes, he'll talk about being on the Red Sox for a little bit later than that. That just might be a little bit of a, a continuity gap. I'm sure somebody can come up with a no-prize explanation for why he said that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you're right. And it's it's a nice way that you phrased it of saying that, you know, the coach's real technical biological family and the family that he's chosen, which is the people in the bar, which is it, it kind of great to think of. You know, one of the things that I always loved about Cheers was that it was a workplace sitcom that very much felt like a family sitcom, too, at times, um, because yeah. of the characters' interplay and interrelationships. And yeah, and yes, you mentioned the villain of the piece, who we haven't really talked about yet, but oh my God. Roy, um, the coach's <laughs> daughter's fiancé, is such a... I love this character. He's the character that you love to hate. And I think if you compare him to like a re the recent episode with the Tortelli tort where you have this Yankees fan, Big Eddie, very over the top and very just like, – as soon as you walk in, you hate this guy. But Roy is a different kind of hate. Like he's so sleazy and, and you want to watch him do more because he's just a fun scene stealer and just how you nasty know he is. Part of me really wants to write some some fan fiction <laughs> where in a in a sales call to Los Angeles, um, he starts trying to sell suit door to door and he goes to Nakatomi Plaza <laughs> and he uh, remember the the guy in Die Hard? Yes. Just like this guy. Just yeah. Like a, a, the uh, Hans. Ellis. Kobe. Yeah. Ellis. Yeah. Ellis. I feel like he and Ellis would just be like the best of friends <laughs> like they would just do cocaine all day and like just have these like amazing 80s adventures like you know when uh he did he goes and seeks his you know fame and fortune i think that this should be a uh you know sort of an expanded universe thing but like yeah no he is he is 100 percent sort of that just sleazy 80s sort of businessman but not like in a in you know a lot of times uh the the 80s portrayed these characters in a very um you know sort of uh i wouldn't say heroic light right. but you know it's like that's just the way of the world but like they're making a very distinct and uh uh, just really, really, really just this guy is just the worst. And you know, he's the worst when he walks in and he, it's just, yeah, it's phenomenal. He's yeah. just, and he, he, dog goes in, crap. he goes into his sales pitches like right away and everything. He like mentions he sells suits and Sam's like, the is this Omni one suit. of them? Yeah. The Omni, he's like, Sam, you took the bait. I'm wearing the Omni <laughs> suit and man, am I comfortable? <laughs> 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 it's, oh, it's so good. And, and, 
like for the most, yeah, yeah, you're right. He, how his interactions with Norman Cliff, especially when he's trying to pitch them the suit, and how it, the fabric doesn't burn when you light oh, it on yeah. fire. But oh my god, it was great. This was almost my favorite part. Uh, my almost my home run line, but it's when they go up to the the restaurant Melville's at the top, and you just hear uh. like Coach comes down first, and Diane is trying to convince Coach that there's there's good in everybody. There must be good in Roy, and you just hear him shouting, "Your mother!" And he comes storming down the stairs. He's like, they act like nobody ever knocked over a dessert cart before. And he just starts, he just starts ranting about it. He's like, yeah, the, he's like that restaurant is pretty good. The dessert guy is a dink. But what am I telling you, Chubbs? And he points to Norm. Uh, and then, yeah, and then Norm gets up and yeah, he's like, no, it's not worth it. Yeah, not worth it. Like, coach him. But... Oh yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like he's such a reprehensible guy, but so fun to watch. Uh, oh, and man. I was amazed that that the actor who plays Roy is a guy named Philip Charles McKenzie. He did a lot of like TV and a lot of stuff at this time, but he actually went into directing and did a lot more sort of behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, and, for instance, he directed a ton of episodes of Frasier, like almost the entire <laughs> third season of Frasier, this guy directed. So I thought that was kind of like fascinating. So, yeah, he, he, must, have, he must have survived the Nakatomi hostage situation. <laughs> he didn't sure. go in that day, but... <laughs> well, you know, it's that uh, it's the flame retardant suit. That's yes. what that's how he got the he explosion. Was, was he was on the roof the whole time, but yeah, he and survived. He, he and Ellis were fine, um, <laughs> but no, yeah, no. The uh, uh, it's yeah, just the, everything about him is just I don't know, really disgusting. Uh, just real quick, it just popped into my mind. But um, there's something that really bothers me about this episode, mm-hmm. and there's one sort of like I, I'm sure it was like sort of like fine in the 1980s. I mean, not fine, but like. You know, like mm. back then there were a lot of like sort of acceptable targets. But uh, when he lights his cigar and he goes, uh, I'm going to smoke my cigar. Do you mind? And, you know, Diane's like, you know, uh, actually the cigar is my violin. And he goes, me too, but I, I love the taste or whatever. But then like uh, Norm walks back down and he says something about like, he's like, who brought in Chinese food? <laughs> and then he sees a cigar and he goes, oh, yeah, cigars don't smell like Chinese food. No, like no. it was a, it was I, a I, weird I, shot. Yeah. Yeah, I have I have no idea. Like, uh, you know, not to step up on a st- too much of a soapbox here, but like, I just I don't know. I thought that line was just really like, you know, clutching my pearls in 2018. I'm like, oh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I don't know. That was uh, just I have, everything about him was just so sleazy. Great, great, uh, great character. Really played well. So yeah. Um, other guests, uh, actors in this, obviously we have the coach's daughter, Lisa Pantuso, played by Alice Beasley, um, who I, I think probably most notable for appearing on Moonlighting. She was on that show for all. Um, she also, I guess, just relatively recently appeared on one episode in season one of Gotham. I don't know, oh, really? but, you know, for, for our fan community, I guess she was in that show. Uh, I, I haven't seen it, but yeah. I know her as, uh, Miss Grotke from Recess, mm. doing the voice of Miss Grotke and, uh, the uh, Disney's One Saturday Morning's Recess, hmm. uh, which I watched as a child. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, there's one other guest character that I, I wanted to mention um, because it's in the first little scene of Act Two. 
there's this really weird, and the, on the face of it, there's nothing weird about it, but I'll come back and explain why it's weird. Um, there's a guy named Chuck who just comes to the bar and he tells Sam that he's been working at a kind of genetics lab where they do a lot of experiments and he's worried about like catching something. And everyone's like, oh, no, they, they take precautions. You're fine. And he's like, all right, thanks for, and he walks out and immediately they go into like hazmat detail where they start spraying down the bar, spraying down his seat, spraying down the phone, everything that he touched. And like everybody, Carla, Norm, Cliff, Sam, they all go into action to like clean up any trace that this guy was there to like protect themselves. It's this really funny scene. The guy who plays like, the guy who plays Chuck is an actor named Tim Cunningham, who actually appeared in 37 episodes of Cheers, from the first season on up to the last episode. Um, but he was always a background character, or a tertiary character, like not even to the level of like somebody like Al or Phil that they usually see. Um, and he, he played different characters named Chuck or Greg or even Tim, just because the actor was named Tim, so they just put him in there. Um, but I just thought, yeah, he was kind of like one of those, like he didn't do a whole lot of acting, so I almost wonder if he was more of like a crew member. Um, like uh-huh. if he was just like working on the show and they needed somebody to appear in like, you know, this one scene, and he was always just there kind of for like background filler. Yeah, you um, look like a blue collar guy. Exactly. Him, exactly. You know? Yeah. But the thing about this that that struck me was this scene where he tells them that he's working at this lab and as soon as he leaves they go into like they clean up for him. This scene was recycled for the oh the cold open of the season finale, showdown part two, opens with this same scene. The thing is that's weird is that they didn't just cut the footage from this episode to put in that one. They reshot the thing. You can watch the scenes back-to-back. They're not dressed the same. They don't look the same. They're in different outfits. It's the same dialogue, the same blocking, the same actions. They reshot it again. I have no idea why they did that. They must have realized they needed an extra two minutes for the cold open or something. And instead of writing a new thing, they just <laughs> reuse the same material. But it's a really weird thing. So. Huh. You know that's um that's really interesting. Now I do I do think that like this is what uh 1983 84 82 this one 82 okay. So like this is back when uh there were no spoilers uh because if you missed a TV program and you didn't tape it, it was that was it. You just you didn't you didn't see it. And so I feel like that that would never ever happen in a sitcom today ever <laughs> but like yeah, yeah back, there was no... back when it was a p- appointment television like you know you were there or you were you were not there yeah there so was no way maybe to that's, compare maybe the that's two what scenes. they were going for you know yeah that's a good point and especially because the ratings for the first season of the show were really bad all the evidence was that the show was going to be canceled so nobody would ever see these again anyway it wasn't like it was going to be in repeats or syndication for a while so yeah how bizarre um, we should talk a little bit more about Coach's daughter Lisa, and in particular the scene between her and and Coach in the in the office. It really kind of boils down to this thing where you know she's a smart girl, she's a professional woman, she's actually she's Roy's boss, she's her fiance's boss. She's and you get the impression that he's marrying her basically to get a promotion and to kind of secure you know a, a better uh, sort of sales um, district. But she's very insecure about her appearance, um, and she thinks that she's not beautiful. She doesn't, and she just, you know, she's worried that uh, she, like, she was raised by, 
you know, a, a coach, an athlete who maybe raised her as a tomboy and she doesn't feel like she has the, the looks and, and coach has to convince her that she is beautiful. What did you think of that scene between them? Oh, well, I think it's just a very stark difference between, you know, sort of, I guess, generational, but like, you know, the, um, the idea that, you know, these, this really was such a, uh, a, a hard thing for baby boomers or, you know, early, early Xers, I guess, um, about those sort of really died in the wall cultural mores where, mm. you know, no one that I know at least thinks this way nowadays. Like, you know, I think that like, this is not prevalent, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, you have to be sort of, you know, you know, marry, you know, just anyone who, uh, you know, the first person that comes along or whatever. And I guess, you know, um, there's a, there's a, just a, a chasm, a real, uh, cultural chasm, I would say between when this took place and now, um, it's a really, uh, it's a, you know, a trope that's much older than this. So it's, it's, you know, it's kind of shocking to see, but, um, I really love the way that she sort of, she's, you know, determined, she's like, you know, no, no one other, you know, no one will ever love me. And, you know, coach comes in as a very supportive parent figure and says, you know, oh no, like, you know, you're, it's, you're, you're viewing yourself completely wrong because, you know, and she's like, well, you know, I think you're beautiful. And he's like, you know, you look just like your mother. And then she, you know, she is about to, uh, at least I took it as about to disparage her mother like she goes to make that leap where she's like you know my mother wasn't attractive but she knows that that's not true and then she's like and then she goes and she like thinks about it for a second and then she goes was never sure of her confidence or i'm not sure the exact never phrasing, comfortable like, with her beauty yeah right comfortable with her beauty and and then she springboards into that sort of it's okay for me to be this way i am i am perfectly fine i am that that is kind of a better but by accepting sort of her mother she's also able to accept herself and that's sort of a very interesting um way to sort of i guess see it but uh you know coach's coach's whole thing in this episode is just so beautiful handled so well and just not toxic at all like just not even sort of a very um i guess forward thinking and sort of you know uh compassionate uh father figure you know that's a good mold you know to, to even replicate in your own life um with the relationships that you have with people but yeah it's just it's it was crazy to me to see how sort of I guess, traditional the situation was, you know, or like, you know, mm -hmm. the, how just how old the tropes were in this episode right. <laughs> compared to, you know, 30 years later, this, I don't think would happen the way that it happens in, in this episode. No, nor, uh, nor would it happen, would it play out today? I mean, we've got, there's so many new ideas of body image and, you know, sort of anti-body shaming and, and things like that, like that are so culturally prevalent nowadays. Um, but, but I do think it is interesting. I mean, they, they cast Alice Beasley, who doesn't look like Shelley Long. She doesn't look like Kirstie Alley. She, she doesn't have more of the conventional leading lady appearance. And it, it's, I mean, I, I always kind of wonder about a scene like this where you have to have an uh, an actress kind of internalizing the fact that she thinks she's ugly or she thinks she's unattractive uh, and and the strength of an actor or actress to have to you know play that part and recognize that they were cast for that particular purpose um but coach 
you know, he, he, he shuts her down and kind of shuts down her reasoning for thinking that. Uh, because of course she's she's been comparing herself to her mother all these years, or thinking that this impression that she had of her mother. But to Coach's eyes, you know, he says it as much. Your mother was the most beautiful woman in the world, and and Lisa's the same way. Um, and, and so there is this very warm, very accepting, but and, and like not even just sort of like not just accepting it on like the sort of terms of of normal kind of beauty, but just you know whatever. You know, the the person who loves her is going to see that she is the most beautiful person, and clearly right. that's not what Roy thinks. So. Right, obviously, yeah. Um, real quick, just as a sort of pop culture addition for our listeners, um, the uh, so I think it was John Hughes that directed uh, Home Alone, right? Is that true? Uh, I I don't remember who directed it, but uh, in Home Alone. Um, when Kevin is digging through Buzz's stuff and he finds a picture of the, this, you know, sort of very unattractive, uh, you know, uh, girl in his, in his belongings, or he's like, Ugh, Buzz's girlfriend. They actually, uh, put a wig on a, a, a boy actor, um, and with braces, uh, because the director, I, I, I it's escaping me at the moment, who actually directed, uh, Home Alone. Uh, didn't want that to permanently damage anybody like any girl actors sort of psyche or like, you know, whatever. <laughs> so the use of uh, uh, a boy actor to, you know, do that, which I mean, you, you can draw your own conclusions from that, but like <laughs> the, uh, the, the, you know, sort of, uh, they, it, it is very interesting to think about the casting decision to be like, we are, casting someone who is sort of not traditionally considered to be leading lady material in for a role in cheers, you know? Right. So it's like, how do you, how would you, you know, go about that or word that or, you know, whatever. But yeah, it is, it is a really thing. I think, you know, I, I personally think that she's gorgeous, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, definitely the standards of beauty, uh, in the 1980s, if, you know, sort of my pop culture, (laughs) whatever knowledge is correct but like it seems like you know there was a lot of superficialism in the 1980s especially in a lot of sort of like you know media everything was like geared towards a very specific slight look a very specific short look a very specific you know sort of fit look a very specific sort of you know a dare i say blonde look Mm -hmm. um but like you know female beauty standards in the 1980s were very very hyper specific Mm -hmm. um and, uh, you know, that's, I think that this does a good job of sort of just like taking a pin to that balloon, you know, <laughs> and just really, really, uh, really n- nailing it to the, uh, to the wall there. So, but yeah, no, I, I, I 100% agree with you. Um, you know, it's just coach does the exact right thing and it's not gross. It's not weird. It's not, you know, any sort of, he genuinely loved the mother and he genuinely loves his child and perceives her as a beautiful human being. And, you know, it's not just her looks, although I'm sure that, you know, it, he was, you know, uh, physically attracted to the mother or whatever. But, like, you know, it's just like it's that's not what's important. Right. And uh, to give her that sort of, I guess, confidence or to remind her of that confidence and to remind her of how her mother became confident over time. Just really beautiful. I don't know. I just I, I really, really think it's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John Hughes wrote Home Alone, by the way. Uh, it okay. was directed by Chris Columbus, 
um, ah. who directed the first two Harry Potter films, actually. So he, he actually had a knack for directing child stars in these movies. So. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there's another little running gag at the beginning of this episode with Coach uh, in that he has named every one of the glasses in the bar. Yeah. And yeah. even though, you know, a, bar gla- a beer glass or a shot glass or a wine glass, they all look the same. And, and Carla points that out because she thinks he's crazy. But he says, you know, to him, they all look very, very different. They're very distinct. And he has named all of them. And right, yeah. yeah, and then this plays out like a few minutes later, you know, he tells uh, the gang, he's like, you know, Lisa is coming by. And Diane <laughs> is like, who's Lisa? And Carla says, Lisa's the coach's daughter. And then, or is it a martini glass? And it's a nice life. But in that moment, Diane laughs very genuinely at, at, uh, Carla's, at Carla's joke. And there's actually this moment where, like, Rhea Perlman turns and looks at Shelly and they smile at each other. And it's almost like this, like, she wasn't expecting her to laugh at that or something. And, like, you never see Diane and Carla interact that way. Like, I don't think ever again in the show. I don't think they ever have a moment like that Maybe where they're on the same ad-lib. side. Yeah, it almost seemed like an ad lib or something like that. Or, you know, when she says it, like, the fact that Shelly Long laughed that hardened that genuinely added that like Carla was taken taken aback by it and kind of caught up in the in the the joke itself. I just thought that was a really funny moment to see the two of them look at each other smiling and laughing. I'm like, that is not the relationship between Diane and Carla that we will see going forward. Well but it was it was the second in production, right? Maybe they were yeah, still yeah. looking at that chemistry. Um yeah. my favorite sort of bit of ephemera around the coach naming the glasses is uh when he's like he's like all of them look different except for what is it, the Winston brothers the Wilson. Wilson brothers, yeah. Oh, Wilson, yeah, Wilson brothers, and he's like he and like he just takes a beat to look at him, <laughs> and then he shakes it off and keeps like you know watching out the class. Um, but like I just I love that sort of just there's like just a half second where he takes a look at him again to try to like look it's almost her. like this like he's scrutinizing them like like it's their fault they're mischievous for like yeah. tricking him at some point right. So, um, but yeah, no, that's uh, it's a really funny and like that that is a running thread through the whole thing. And I think isn't it the last uh, the last part of the, the episode two where what is it? Uh, Shelley Wong is going to throw a glass at him, and he's like, "Hey, that's like Steve or whoever." <laughs> and he's like, "He's got a he's got a martini glass and four little shot glasses at home or something like that." That's a sort of gag at the end, but yeah, it's it's all the way through. So yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, and it's good. I, I think like the the episode. There's a nice through line with you know Sam bucking Coach up and, and inspiring him, and he gives the speech to to Lisa, and she goes out to the bar and she shuts Roy down and she dumps him, and you know he's putting it back in her face. He's like, if I leave, if I walk out that door, I'm never coming back. And everybody in the bar erupts into applause. They're like, this is the best thing they've heard all day. And and she like just stares him down. She's like, yeah, go. I'm not. And he's like, fine, I'm out of here. And of course he has to put the button on it. He gives his business card to Norm. He's like, this doesn't mean we can't do business. So yeah, it was it was a good a good little episode with like a sweet little moment between Coach and his daughter, um, punctuated with a, a very funny, despicable but watchable villain uh, that oh, we see. Um, it's I, I mean I noticed like the coach is only in three seasons of the show. Lisa never comes back. Um, we don't we don't really get much reference. I'm not sure if she's even referenced again. Maybe she is. But we we don't see her again, and this is kind of uh, an interesting little development that humanizes this character that they never come back to. I yeah, that might have been a little bit of a lost uh, missed opportunity. But uh, I think so. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, for Norm's tab, uh, I only based on my calculations and how I was doing it, he only had three beers this episode, um, which for now puts him up to sixteen beers for the whole series uh, after just these five episodes. Oh uh, wow! Yeah, this is. Uh, I, I didn't. I did not know that you are. Uh, you're going to tabulate these, but uh, that is a great idea because <laughs> uh, they finally get an answer. Yeah, so. thanks to thanks to Rob Kelly for making me want, super scrutinize these episodes. And before I record every one of these, I was like, oh god, I didn't record how many beers Norm had. I had to watch it again. <laughs> so that's uh, incredible. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts on the episode before we uh, go to our uh, superlative categories? No, I think uh, we we covered uh, the you know the emotional core and uh, most of the excellent jokes in here. So, um, except for my uh, my my joke of uh, choice, <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll get to that when we get to the superlatives. But we we covered I think everything else of note. All right, then uh, before we get to the jokes, Andy, who is your employee of the week? Who is the MVP? Well, it's got to be Norm, and it, it's you know I um I've seen him out coach, but his sort of thing is separate from the bar stuff that's going on. So I kind of discluded him because of the, uh, and also I just think that it's stronger. It's gotta be Norm. And it's because of Norm's taking to the <laughs> ribbing and, and sort of, you know, just, just, he is out to get this, <laughs> this, this guy, this, uh, this, you know, fiance character. And um, the whole bit where he's got the lighter out and he's, you know, trying to light the suit on fire is great. And just, you know, when he's going to pound the guy and gets up and clips, you know, <laughs> just everything about it, it's, it's really great. And he's got some great cracks, some great sort of ribs and one-liners in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, just he is the sort of main, I think, interaction to sort of, uh, I guess, de- demonstrate just how much of a dink this guy is. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, for me, it's Norm. Yeah, I, I love the moment at the end when he's like goes to set his business card on fire. That's a, and the look on his face, too, yeah. uh, is really, really <laughs> wonderful. Um, I really, I mean, it's hard not to like Coach in this episode because he vibes right. from both funny and you know, personal. I love when he goes with, back to the office with Lisa and she's, and he's like, how can you be marrying this guy? And she's like, isn't it obvious? And he's like, nothing is ever obvious to me. <laughs> and then like when he tells her she's the most beautiful girl in the world, like his voice cracks. You can like hear yeah. him like, fighting back the tears. It's such a wonderful thing. Um, so it's, uh, he, he's a strong contender for, but I, I almost think my employee of the week, if I can give it to a non-regular character, it might be Roy. Just he's such a sleazy guy. I've, I love your I, I, I love your fan I, fiction of putting him together with Ellis from Die Hard. That's so, so perfect. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and I didn't know that that was on the table, but now we've expanded the category 100. <laughs> percent It is Roy for sure yeah. because he is just he just plays it to a T. He is just that actor is just perfect for the role. And he is just just the driving force of this episode. He is just everything. He he is the irritant. He is the pee in the pool of cheers. <laughs> and uh, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see those those characters interact with such a just. I mean, if, I don't know if I've seen an episode of Cheers with such a. Uh, sort of, you know, raucous, uh, uh, upsetting the balance. You know, there's Harry later on, but mm-hmm. like he is just he he shakes everything up, and it really puts them in a in a pickle because they're taking cues from Coach, and Coach is trying to 
see how he feels about you know it's just it's yeah so 100 it's got to be roy yeah. um and his and his cigars and his apparent uh destruction of melville's dessert cart <laughs> uh, so uh, oh, his, uh, oh, I'm sorry. His his uh, four party post dated check that he tries to pay for. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. He makes Lisa pay for lunch because they wouldn't take a four party post dated check. Oh, that's so good. I have no idea, but you know. <laughs> all right, all right, Andy. Then what was your home run? What was the the best or the funniest gag in the episode? Okay, so I have a weird sense of humor, mm-hmm. and like uh, this gets me into trouble a lot. But for me, the funniest thing in this episode is uh, the character bit in the beginning when um, Diane is trying to, you know, she convinces, or she, well, you know, asks Sam and then completely ignores him and uh, goes, and she, so she, she draws, uh, she's doing a caricature <laughs> of two people sitting at a table. And she goes over and shows it to him, and it looks, apparently, it's just atrocious, which I think it's a crime that we don't actually get to see this terrible caricature. Uh, but uh, uh, she shows it, and he goes, oh, I, Norm goes, hey, I think that's really good. And she goes, oh, really? And he goes, yeah, it looks just like her, and points to someone down at the end of the bar. Well, there's a lady that's sitting down at the end of the bar, and she's drinking. And uh, Diane goes over, and she goes, uh, hey, I'm the Cheers character caricaturist. And uh, I drew you. And she goes, now, I want to personalize it. What are your hobbies? And she goes, oh, well, I like to go horseback riding. And so the uh, the so Diane d- just starts, you know, doodling her <laughs> horseback riding. And just her sort of uh, making the sort of, uh, I don't know, whatever that song is, you know, the, uh, it's, it's yeah. the Williams Overture. Yeah, or yeah. Something those lines. And so she goes and she tries to draw this horse and she shows it later and she goes, oh, that's pretty good. But why am I riding a lizard? I just died. Like I just the first time I saw that, I just could not stop laughing um, as an artist me. myself. Like there are times, you know, even if, you know, even when, you know, someone with a, a small modicum of training or, you know, whatever, you sometimes just get things wrong and horses are hard. I get it. But like that. The whole, like, why am I riding a lizard thing just killed, just <laughs> totally, I just, I love it. So that's my, that's my sort of joke of the week or my sort of highlight that way. But I just, I love that. I just loved it so much. And I hate, I just hated her. It was so annoying. Like the way that she was humming was just infuriatingly, <laughs> just, I don't know. It was terrible. It was really bad. It just, it made me actively angry. So <laughs> it was, it was a combination of things, but yeah, I, I love that part. Nice. Nice. Um, I talked about it earlier. My my runner up for this category was the whole cleanup after Chuck leaves um, uh, in the okay. beginning. Like, yeah. like once they spring into action and they start spring, they're like, "Sammy, he used the phone." And Sam like throws the spray can to Norm, <laughs> who throws it over his shoulder to Cliff, who sprays the phone, throws it back to Norm, back to like Sam, and like the way like they time it, like after like Sam checks his watch, he's like, "Yeah, like this is something they probably do every week or something like that," and they've perfected the system of cleaning up after him. That was my runner up, but. I really like uh, when Sam is talking to Coach and trying to bolster his confidence to confront Lisa, and he tells him the "go get him" speech, and he's like, "You know, if you hadn't given me that speech on that day, my career in baseball might have ended that day." Unlike when it actually ended a few weeks later, <laughs> and I just, thought, I just love the way he, did, because he just kind of like realizes he's like, "Yeah, okay, maybe." It, like he's undercutting his own argument because at that point the writing was on the wall that he was going to lose his job. But like coach. Coach may have saved him for like five more games that he came in off the. Hey, out that's of the month. that's yeah. another entire paycheck. There so. you go. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, um, that was Coach's Daughter. Thank you very much, Andy, for being my guest on this episode. Where else can people find you online, or what other projects would you like to plug for our listeners? Um, well, I have a uh, what's turning into a, a very hero points turn, but a uh, semi-annual podcast that comes out called Force 95, uh, which currently you can find on YouTube. We're still looking for a home and a direction for that, but eventually it will get off the ground. And that's a Star Wars uh, action figure podcast that will eventually probably just end up as a regular Star Wars podcast. But uh, you can look for that on YouTube. Um, and yeah, that's basically where I am these days. Uh, you can contact me on Twitter. Uh, at I just changed it. It is uh, 1138 reference. Um, so on Twitter, I go by at 1138 reference. Um, and yeah, that's basically it. Well, thank you very much, Andy, for being on the show one more time. Uh, And listeners, thank you, as always, for tuning in. You know you can support the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the website post, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And until next time, we're closed. I'm not dumb. I know Roy's abrasive. I know he's insensitive. And I know he's probably only marrying me so we can get to Pennsylvania Territory. But why would you want to marry a man like this? Daddy, isn't it obvious to you? Nothing's ever obvious to me. (laughs) Daddy, don't make me say this. What? What? I want to be married, and I want to have children. Roy is the first man that ever asked me to marry him, and I'm afraid he's going to be the last. Oh, come on, honey. There must have been dozens of young fellas that proposed to you. No, Daddy. Wake up. Roy is the first one ever. So You're so beautiful, so... Beautiful? Daddy, you have been saying that I'm beautiful ever since I was a very little girl. But look at me. Not as my father, but like you're looking at me for the first time. And please, try to see me as I really am. Oh, my God. I I didn't realize how much you looked like you. I know. I look exactly like her. And Mom was not. Comfortable about her beauty. But that's what made her more beautiful. Your mother grew more beautiful every day of her life. She was really beautiful. Yes, and so are you. You're the most beautiful kid in the whole world. Thanks, Daddy.